Welcome to Back to Health, your source for the latest in health, wellness, and medical care. Keeping you informed so you can make informed healthcare choices for yourself and your whole family. Back to Health features conversations about trending health topics and medical breakthroughs from our team of world-renowned physicians at Weill Cornell Medicine. I'm Melanie Cole, and if you've heard of ketamine, it's probably for its history as a club drug, but it could also be one of the biggest breakthroughs in treating severe depression in years. Our topic today is the exciting announcement of a study indicating the effects of ketamine on the brain of the severely depressed. My guest is Dr. Connor Liston. He's an associate professor of neuroscience and psychiatry in the File Family Brain and Mind Institute at Weill Cornell Medicine. Dr. Liston, I'm so glad to have you on with us today. Tell us a little bit about the prevalence and the general impact of depression in this country. Depression is a major problem and, and a growing one. In fact, by one estimate, it's uh, now um, the leading cause of disability in the United States and many other developed countries. It's enormously costly. Estimates vary, but on the order of hundreds of billions of dollars a year are spent on treating depression and uh, due to lost productivity at work for, for depressed people. And of course, it's also a tremendous burden for the patients who are actually depressed. Part of why those statistics are so grim has to do with the prevalence of depression. By some estimates, about 15%, maybe up to 20% of people will get depressed at one point in their life. And for a subset of those people, they will go through repeated depressions, um, recurrent episodes of depression over the course of their life. And finding the right treatments and uh, getting it to work quickly is a major obstacle and challenge in treating people with depression. Wow, that's quite an impact both on patients, the country, and on providers to treat. Dr. Liston, what are the current and past standards of care as, as far as medicational interventions? Right. There are a variety of uh, medications for depression, and uh, many of them are quite effective. That's the good news. Um, patients uh, have many different options for for treatments, uh, but finding the right treatments uh, for the right individual uh, has always been a challenge uh, the kind of mainstay of treatment are drugs like Prozac. Um, we call them selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. These are the first-line treatments for depression. They they work for many people, but they don't work for everyone. And uh, they usually take uh, like weeks um, or up to a couple of months uh, for us to uh, discover um, whether you know a particular uh, antidepressant uh, was effective in this particular individual. And if it wasn't, then we need to kind of go back to the drawing board and uh, try another one. And that's one of the reasons uh, ketamine is so exciting, uh, it, that it seems to act much more rapidly than most of our con conventional antidepressants do. And we're going to talk about ketamine in a minute here, but why would someone not see results from standard antidepressants? Tell us a little bit about treatment-resistant depression. Right. Uh, a substantial proportion of people who get depressed will uh, try one antidepressant and find that it that it didn't work. And then they'll try another antidepressant and, and find that that one didn't work either. And uh, uh, we usually classify uh, people as treatment resistant if uh, they've tried a at least two or sometimes three antidepressants uh, at an adequate dose uh, and for an adequate duration of time, which usually means um, uh, like six to eight weeks. And uh, unfortunately, a substantial proportion of people who get depressed will fall into that category where they uh, where they they won't get better with uh, with many of the, the conventional antidepressants. 
then what is ketamine and what's the history of it? How has it been used in the past? Yeah, so ketamine, uh, actually, it, you know, it's been FDA approved for other purposes for a long time, um, mainly as an anesthetic agent. Uh, uh, if, if, uh, I know, I was a, um, I broke my arm when I was a kid. Um, I had to have surgery when I was a kid, uh, as, as many kids do. And, um, kids who have surgery, uh, the anesthetic of choice is often ketamine, uh, for various reasons. Um, but at much lower doses, uh, it turns out that ketamine is also useful as an antidepressant. So that was discovered uh, by groups at Yale and the National Institute of Mental Health um, going on, gosh, it must be close to 15 years now, uh, where they first started working on that. Um, uh, initial studies showed a lot of promise where people got an IV infusion of a sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine, so a dose that wouldn't be sufficient to you know, produce anesthesia to put someone to sleep. Uh, but um, when delivered IV, um, it kind of went through their system, and um, within a few hours of the treatment, um, these people were suddenly feeling um, uh, relief from their depressive symptoms. And that was really remarkable because a lot of these people uh, did fall into that treatment-resistant category where they tried multiple antidepressants in the past um, and found that they didn't work for them uh, even after weeks and months, uh, whereas ketamine seemed to be achieving these um, really wonderful results um, quite rapidly. Isn't that interesting? And now I really want to hear about your groundbreaking study regarding ketamine and depression. Why is this such a big deal and why did you see the need to do this? Right. So the ketamine is a really exciting uh, new development in, in, in psychiatry. Uh, it's really one of the first um, kind of fundamentally new antidepressants that we've had in a long time. Um, many of uh, the existing antidepressants are closely related to one another. Uh, ketamine seems to work by a very different mechanism. Um, and so there's a lot of excitement in the field about um, whether uh, uh, ketamine um, and um, maybe drugs like ketamine um, could be, uh, could be um, useful for treating depression uh, going forward. But there's also um, some limitations with ketamine. Um, so uh, the way that uh, it's um, mainly used right now is to achieve acute, really rapid relief of depressive symptoms in people who are really sick um, and uh, might be at risk of suicide. And so you can give them an infusion of ketamine um, and uh, they can, they can um, feel rapid relief of their symptoms. Um, but those benefits... Uh, don't always last, unfortunately. Um, so um, one of the big challenges with ketamine treatment is figuring out um, what else we can do in addition to a single dose of ketamine to kind of prolong the antidepressant effects. Um, what the what the studies have shown us is that um, um, many people will feel almost immediately better within hours after getting an infusion of ketamine, but absent some other intervention, if you check back in a week, um, many of those people will uh, have a recurrence of their depressive symptoms. And if you check back in two or three weeks and you haven't done anything else for them during that time, uh, um, most of those people will be depressed again. Um, so it's a really potent effect and it's rapid. Um, but it's not necessarily long-lasting. So one of the things we wanted to understand in this study was um, what are the mechanisms by which uh, ketamine induces this antidepressant effect acutely um, and um, which mechanisms are involved in sustaining the antidepressant effect over time. Well, that segues nicely into my next question. What is the biological reason for why ketamine works like this? What are some of the things that you found out? 
So, right, in this study, and I should emphasize, um, uh, you know, this study was um, in animal models, um, not in patients, uh, and so um, it's an open question um, to what extent um, similar processes are happening in the human brain. We have a lot of reason to think that um, that something similar is going on. Um, but basically what we found is that uh, the formation of new synapses, new connections between brain cells uh, in a region of the brain called the prefrontal cortex seems to be quite important for mediating ketamine's antidepressant effect, but not in the way that we initially thought. So uh, previous studies had um, pointed to the fact that uh, the formation of these new connections was probably important, but it wasn't clear exactly what role they played. Um, and what we found by collaborating with a team at the University of Tokyo led by uh, doctors Haruo Kasai and Haruhiko Bito, uh, they had developed uh, a new technology that allowed us to basically optically delete uh, newly formed connections in the brain in a really precise way and ask by deleting those new connections whether they were required for ketamine's antidepressant effects. And what we found, uh, contrary to our initial expectations, was that um, they weren't actually required for inducing the effect uh, acutely. So, uh, in fact, uh, the mice in our study um, had antidepressant benefits, behavioral effects of ketamine, very rapidly after the treatment, within just a few hours. But these new connections didn't start to form um, until uh, 12 to 24 hours. Uh, so they came after um, and so that logic just tells us, um, you know, they can't be required um, for, for inducing the effect acutely. Um, but what we did find um, was that they're required in a different way, not necessarily what we expected initially. They, it turns out that they're important for maintaining the antidepressant effect over time. So if you delete those new synapses after they form, um, the, the mice um, exhibit these antidepressant behavioral effects initially, but they don't last. Uh, the antidepressant effects wear off after a time. Um, and we think that's really interesting and potentially important because it suggests that the formation of these new synapses, these new connections, might be important in maintaining, sustaining uh, the durability of ketamine's antidepressant behavioral effects. And if that's the case, then new interventions, they could be new drugs um, or uh, it could be um, brain stimulation interventions or it could be something as simple as um, exercise, which we know um, can promote synapse formation. Um, interventions like this might be helpful for enhancing the durability of ketamine's uh, antidepressant effects over time and perhaps uh, augmenting this treatment. That's so cool. Dr. Liston, what a fascinating study that could have such implications. What about the concerning side effects of ketamine? Is there a, is, is this a controversial study? Do you feel, is there a fear of dependency? And if the side effects are concerning, then how is it administered? What are some things to watch out for as you're doing this study? Right. Well, you know, again, um, we're doing this study in mice. Um, and so, uh, in a very controlled environment. And so, um, there's, uh, no concerns about, um, adverse side effects of ketamine. Um, in our experiments. Um, but I think your question is also getting at the bigger picture um, that matters to patients and doctors more, which is, um, does ketamine um, have concerning side effects when administered to people? Um, and uh, yes, it can. Um, so you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that uh, a lot of people know about ketamine um, because uh, it's a club drug. Um, uh, like historically, people have um, used ketamine to get high. and uh, And it does have this potential for 
abuse and um, and um, perhaps addictive properties. And so um, I don't think uh, anyone is contemplating um, giving ketamine to uh, to people um, in an uncontrolled setting. Um, that would probably not be a good idea. Um, and uh, another big question is um, uh, this safety of giving ketamine uh, repeatedly. Um, I think uh, that's uh, that's a question that uh, no one really knows the answer to yet. Um, I think different uh, investigators are working on that, um, and, and hopefully we will know soon. Um, but what we know now is that uh, um, ketamine is um, very safe when administered um, um, properly in a controlled um, clinic setting um, once, um, but uh, the more work is needed to understand whether um, ketamine can be safely um, administered to people uh, repeatedly and and to um, avoid any concerns about uh, abuse or addiction. That was a great explanation, Dr. Liston. So where do you see this research going in the future? Well, uh, one thing we're really excited about uh, is kind of what I um, alluded to a moment ago, which is um, whether uh, other interventions that might uh, enhance the formation of new connections in the brain after ketamine treatments, um, um, augment ketamine, in other words, or interventions aimed at uh, sustaining those synapses. Um, so I didn't, I didn't go into detail on this, but as it turns out, what happens when you when you get treated with ketamine is a bunch of new synapses form, um, and those new synapses, uh, some of them will persist, but some of them will disappear over time, and our data suggests that interventions that kind of enhance the proportion of synapses that survive, that persist for days or weeks, that those kind of interventions might be really useful uh, for augmenting um, ketamine as a treatment. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of ways um, you might imagine uh, 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 testing interventions to, to accomplish that goal. And that's one of the things that we're, we're excited about doing uh, here in the lab. It is exciting. This whole research is exciting. Tell us about your mission at your laboratory and your team. Right. Uh, so um, I'm a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, and my, my my lab operates at the interface between these two uh, really exciting fields. One of the things that gets me um, excited about coming to work every day, and I think um, a lot of people in my field share this feeling, uh, is that neuroscience is being transformed by these new technologies that are enabling us to ask questions that would have seemed like science fiction just a few years ago. And I think the uh, potential for the field to generate uh, really groundbreaking discoveries that are going to transform our understanding of how the brain works and uh, how uh, uh, how the brain is dysfunctional in psychiatric illness, um, that these discoveries are uh, just around the corner. Um, in my lab, we're particularly focused on understanding how brain circuits support um, learning and memory and motivation and uh, how those processes are disrupted by factors like stress, uh, sleep, and antidepressants, um, factors that are so important in um, influencing people's uh, mental health. Um, so that's kind of the focus of a lot of our work. And uh, a third component is looking at um, whether we can uh, develop new brain imaging technologies to rethink the way we go about uh, diagnosing mental illnesses and depression in particular, and hopefully identify uh, diagnostic subtypes uh, with a stronger correspondence to biology that might in turn be useful for uh, for informing treatment selection decisions. So these are some of the things that we're really excited about studying uh, here in my lab. 
Well, they certainly are such important aspects to be looking at. Dr. Liston, as we wrap up, what an interesting topic we're discussing today. Tell other providers and any patients listening that you what you would like them to know and take from the studies that you're doing on mice on the effects of ketamine and severe depression. What do you want them to take away from this and what should they be looking forward to to read from you in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, the the bigger picture with ketamine is just uh, it, it, many many physicians may not uh, many physicians will be familiar with ketamine as as an anesthetic agent, but may not be aware that uh, ketamine is now being used as an antidepressant. And so I think uh, I hope that one of the takeaway messages um, can just be kind of increased awareness of of this option as a treatment for depression, and uh, and also that it's probably best administered by experts in a uh, clinical specialist setting, and, uh, and but, but that it is an option that's out there. And so for people who are acutely suicidal, who are in danger of harming themselves uh, in the near term, um, ketamine offers this great new option that can achieve really rapid relief of their symptoms uh, in, in just a few hours. Um, and that's very exciting. Um, that being said, there's a lot of work to be done in uh, figuring out what we can do to prolong ketamine's antidepressant behavioral effects. And uh, that's uh, some of the work that, that, that we're so excited about doing uh, here in my lab. Well, it certainly is exciting, and I can't wait to hear more results from you, Dr. Liston. Thank you again for joining us. That concludes today's episode of Back to Health. We'd like to thank our listeners and invite our audience to download, subscribe, rate, and review Back to Health on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play Music. For more health tips, please visit wildcornell.org and search podcasts. Parents, don't forget to check out Kids HealthCast. I'm Melanie Cole. If you or a loved one is undergoing cancer treatment, rehabilitation medicine can help with recovery and ease painful side effects. If you'd like to learn more about cancer care, we have a podcast dedicated to oncology, CancerCast, hosted by Dr. John Leonard, a leading hematology oncologist. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast, opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Wild Cornell Medicine as an institution.